together uh, towards the end of the week. I got a surprise phone call or text from Kevin Friday afternoon saying, hey, um, Rory's out of town. Um, Aaron is sick, which you could tell. Um, Kevin, I know, was celebrating uh, Erica's birthday. Blaine, would you like to teach? You know, and I'm like, well, sure, okay. Um, as we, as we uh, surrender our lives to follow Christ, you guys, and as, as we remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, and we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then we step up to the plate when we're called. Um, as I was seeking to, uh, seeking wisdom and, and in prayer, going, okay, what are we going to teach about? What would you as the other elders, what would you guys have me speak about this morning? And I went back to uh, about three months ago, maybe four months ago now, uh, I was listening on the radio um, on the way home from work, and I live in town and I work in town, so there wasn't a whole lot of time there on the radio, but I heard a, a pastor get on the radio, and maybe I misunderstood him, but it looked like he was misquoting this section of scripture that we're going to be going through, and so I went home and, and took a look at it. It happens to be in Luke chapter 22. Um, by the way, does everybody have a Bible in here so you can kind of follow through if necessary? If not, we'll make sure and get Bibles out to you. So raise your hands if you need one. Um, and as you work your way towards Luke 22, the two verses that are in there that caught my attention was verse 31 and 32. Let me read it real quick. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You guys, let's pray real quick before we get in. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We ask that the word that comes out of your mouth, Lord, that it would not return to you void. Lord, that it would accomplish that which pleases you and that it would prosper in the thing for which it was sent. So, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to go through your word and may your, um, may your Holy Spirit touch hearts with both comfort and conviction as we enter into this study. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Okay, well, this text to set the stage in Luke chapter 22, it's in a section of scripture, you guys, that uh, Christ and his disciples were preparing the Passover. They had found the upper room. They were preparing the Passover, making a place for Christ to eat his last supper. He got an opportunity to, Christ had an opportunity to eat his last supper to... Um, begin the sacrament of communion. He brought up a question, uh, or the statement, I guess, that there's one amongst them who would betray them, sparking off this discussion um, about greatness that you see in the preceding verses, verse 24 through 30. In there sandwiched in 
these two verses, we get a glimpse as to what's going on behind the scenes in the realm of spiritual warfare to do with not only these disciples, but to do, and not only Peter's life or the disciples, but also what's involved with us. After this section of scripture, as I just again set the stage, uh, Christ predicts Peter's denial. Christ prays in the garden. He gets betrayed and arrested at Gethsemane. And Peter ends up denying his Lord. So again, sandwiched in between this are these two verses. And I had them in the sound booth put up both the New King James Version of these two verses and the original King James Version of it. Because there's some things we're going to take apart, we're going to break apart, we'll take a look at the comparisons between the two, the two versions there. There's five points I want to get into with these two verses, all of which to show that Christ in his sovereignty is sovereign over our growth in preparedness for his kingdom. All of our strengthening, Christ is absolutely sovereign over. And in these five observations, we take a look at Christ's sovereignty over all creation. We take a look at, at Jesus, his wisdom to allow us to be refined in the fire. We look at Jesus, our great intercessor. We look at Jesus, our great hope. And we look at Jesus, his great calling on our lives, our high calling. So let's, let's kind of begin. In this first section, as I explain that he is sovereign over all creation, I'm going to break apart the first verse into this. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. In the original King James, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. First off, as we begin this study, twice repeating Simon's name leads us to understand the intensity of the warning that's about to take place. This interruption of that argument in, in greatness and the apparent, as we look further in the text, the apparent overconfidence of Peter, this double pronouncement of Simon's name is to get his attention and bring the importance to it. The next word as we, as we enter in and tear this apart, in the New King James says, indeed. In the original King James it says, behold. Now for you guys that have done some study in scripture, you know, those, those words right there is a proclamation of, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to what I got to say. Um, what I have to say at this point right now is of utmost paramount importance. Okay, so that being said, as we look at this, it says, Satan has asked for you, or Satan hath desired to have you. Two questions that come up 
as we take a look at this. The first question is, why does Satan have to ask permission? Why is it that he had to go to Christ first? Why is that? And the second question we'll answer in this, in this first category is why does he ask for us? What is his purpose in asking for us? And is it truly us he's asking? So let's take a look and do a quick study as to the absolute authority and power that Christ has over all creation, over all nature, over all created beings this side in the material world and the created beings on the other side in the spiritual realm. As we look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. As we look in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, God who had at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's understand that he is sovereign. Jesus also, because of his sovereignty in creation, demands perfect obedience from all creation. As we take a look in Mark chapter 4, as Christ left to get into the boat and cross across the Sea of Galilee, and in his ministry he was tired and fell asleep in the stern Asleep on a pillow. This is Mark chapter 4, verse 38. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? Nature obeys. Creation obeys. Even in Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 12, when he had spoke to the fig tree, and you guys remember this, this story. He says in verse 13, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. If you skip over to verse 20, it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. 
And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered away. Nature obeys. Obedience is demanded. Obedience is required from the sovereign creator God of all. As we look into the spiritual realm, staying in Mark. Mark chapter 1. When Christ was teaching in the synagogue. It says in verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. The spirit obeyed. The Spirit not only obeyed, but knew who Christ was. That he was the creator, sovereign God of all things. And I'm getting this to the point to understand this question that we, that we brought up at first. Why is it that Satan has asked permission? Flip over to Mark chapter 5. The same kind of thing. As he crossed to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gadarenes. There was a man who was possessed by demon spirits. They could not bind him. They could not chain him. This man, it says down in the, in the story, that he called his name Legion, which means a thousand. Call, called his name Legion. He says, for we are many. Now, when this man with the legion of demons saw Christ... In verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. That's not only the man. That's the demonic presence. Understand that. You know, let's, let's, let's make a point of that. When he said, my name is Legion, for we are many, in verse 10, the demons begged that he wouldn't get sent out into the country, that he wouldn't just get sent out into the abyss, Right? The demons begged him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once, verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. The entire realm of God's kingdom obeys. Obedience is demanded. Obedience is required. Let's look and finish this question as to why Satan has asked permission in Job. Job's kind of the classic example of behind-the-scenes view of what goes on before the throne of God. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And at that point in time, Satan began his accusations. The accuser of our brethren as we peer into the inside corporate office of God, okay, so to speak. Satan could do nothing until 
until God granted him permission. Same thing in chapter 2 of Job. In the first few verses, it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So not only did did God in the first chapter allow Satan to take away all of his possessions, all of his relationships, anything that was close to him, and it says towards the end of chapter 1, in all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. But now he's given him his flesh, he's given him his body, he's given him pain and trial and anguish. And he approved that. But the point I want to make is that Satan had to ask permission first. Although Jesus is directing these words in verse 31 to Peter, one thing in studying this, I want you guys to... to come in with me and understand this is that as it says Simon Simon indeed Satan has asked for you or it says in the original King James Simon Simon behold Satan hath desired to have you that first usage of the word you in the Greek language is plural okay he's not only speaking to Peter himself He's also speaking to all the apostles and disciples around him. And by and through the Holy Spirit of God, he's speaking to us here today. When we as believers have counted the cost to follow Christ, when we have denied ourselves and we've wholeheartedly chosen to live our lives for Jesus Christ and for the cause of his gospel, we immediately become the arch enemy of Satan. Now this answers the second question. Why is it that he asks for us? Because we're his enemy. He's not worried about us when we're not standing up for the gospel. When we stand up for the gospel and we say, Christ, look, you can have everything I am, and replace it with everything you are from now on. And it's real and comes from the heart. You instantly cross the fence and you enter into those that are hated by the world and hated um, by Satan and his realm. In Luke chapter 6, he makes this clear. In Luke chapter 6, as he speaks of the Beatitudes, verse 22 and 23, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. In John chapter 15, Christ explains it in verse 19 also. He says, If you were of the world, 
the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Just as he was speaking of Job, and Job stood up for what was right, and God explained, this man is blameless. This man fears God. When we make that proclamation that we will not compromise our faith and we will stand before this world for the cause of Jesus Christ, we immediately become a target. So Christ is sovereign. That's the first point I want to make. Christ is sovereign over all. Let's go to the second section. Jesus, wisdom to allow refining by fire. So that second section of verse 31 After he has said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Let's take a look at that he may sift you as wheat. Let's talk about trials. Let's talk about tribulations. Let's talk about persecutions for a little bit. Although unsettling and undesirable, it produces refinement in our character necessary for God to conform us into his image. We're not to be surprised at the trials and tribulations that come. In fact, James tells us words to count it all as joy, and he explains why in that passage. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 12, says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So why does Satan desire to sift you? Why does he desire to sift sift Peter in this particular case? Why does he desire to sift and to test and to try the disciples and the apostles that were in the room around him? Why does he desire to get in and try and test us? What is his heart's desire in that? What is Satan's heart's desire? Remember the the parable of the seed and the sower. Okay, where in Matthew chapter 13, you know, the first um, seed was cast out... um, on the the byway of the road. And Satan snatched it out of their hands before the word could take root. Before they could even get a chance to allow it to, to grow and foster and develop roots, Satan grabbed it. The second story was of the seed that went out on shallow ground. And as it got warm, it sprouted up fast. It sprouted up fast. And as soon as the trials and tribulations for standing up for the word of God, came about, they shriveled up and died. The third one, you know, when the seed was um, cast out amongst the thorns and the briars, and the thorns and the briars grew up and choked it out. Um, The the meaning of the thorns and briars being uh, the deceitfulness of this world, the cares of life, uh, the falsehoods of riches, choking us out, 
to where there was no fruit born. Satan's desire is to reach in and squelch the word. Satan's desire is to trip us up. Remember what the description that Christ um, told about Satan in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief has not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This is the agenda, you know, of our enemy out there. Remember that that enemy can't do anything without Christ's approval first. So let's understand that in the midst of the trials and testings, when we have reached the end of our, um, our abilities, our own abilities, when, reached the, we've, when we've reached the end of our self-sufficiencies, when we've reached the ends of our talents and our intellect, when the only hope we have is to reach out and grab the hem of the garment of Christ in total dependence upon him, that seems to be when Christ moves in his glory for his purposes in our lives. That's always when significant, lasting change happens to us, is in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations. That's when faith deepens, when boldness is empowered, when unconditional love shines through, when endurance is strengthened, when gifts are discovered, all to the glory of God and his kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, I can get to it here. It says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In 1 Peter, as we take a look, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the wisdom to allow us to be refined in the fire. Let's look at the third section. Jesus, the great intercessor. As he finishes verse 31, when Christ says, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. One of the really uh, poetic versions of that verse, again, is in the original King James, where it says, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. When Christ allows, by his sovereignty, us to go through the trials and tribulations that it takes to grow us and to refine us and to develop us to be conformed to the image 
of the Son of God. He's alongside and he prays. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And although Peter in this case, and this in context, failed miserably, denying his Lord in the season of his testing, his faith never failed. When Christ prayed that his faith wouldn't fail, it didn't. There was a road, there was a season, there was a time of anguish, of suffering. We, we see that as we take a look at the rest of his story, and we will in just a second. Sometimes, you guys, in the process of our growth or our sanctification, Jesus allows us to enter into a trial or tribulation where the fire is so hot in the refining furnace that it breaks us. And that's necessary. And that's compassion on his behalf. Sometimes our characteristics are so entrenched in our identity, so entrenched in our agenda, so entrenched in the own, the, our own kingdom that we've built around us, that in order for us to be changed and to further our, our growth in this confirmation into being Christ-like, we've got to be broken. Amen. God loves a broken spirit. And he promises that we will be there, that he will be there with us. David understood this as he went through his fall with Bathsheba. And he was explaining in Psalm 51, you know, his heart of grief and confession. His heart of repentance. And he explains in verse 16 and 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Sometimes he has to take us to that. In Psalm 23, which we all knew, we all grew up with, some of that kind of stuff, even non-believers understand that. Christ promises that he won't leave us in there. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So as we go through that, let's realize that Christ is there. He's not only there, in his sovereignty, he's ordained it, he's approved it, and he did it for our good and our benefit. Let's acknowledge here and now that Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for his saints. He reaches out. And he is our great intercessor. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the description of Christ is, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As we look in Romans chapter 8, Verse 34 says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So what is Christ's 
powerful, protective prayer look like? We're given a glimpse of this, you guys, in John chapter 17. As John records Christ's prayer to his father. Not the Lord's prayer, the model prayer that we grew up with and some of that kind of stuff. But his actual prayer, Jesus Christ's actual prayer to his father. I don't have time to go through verse by verse, but let me just recap this. That wonderful prayer. He prays for his disciples' knowledge, verse 6 through 9. He prays for their perseverance in verse 10 through 12. He prays for their joy in verse 13. He prays for their sanctification in verse 14 through 17. He prays for their mission, verse 18 and 19. He prays for future believers, for their oneness, verse 20 and 21. He prays for their perfect unity, Verse 23, he prays for their future presence with them, verse 24 and 25, and their mutual love, verse 26. Christ's intercessory capacity, because he has been here and he lived a life on earth as we did, but yet without sin. He's been there, he's done that, and he is the perfect intercessory prayer warrior for your lives in the, in the trials and in the struggles and in the suffering that you're going through right now. He is perfectly prepared for that. Jesus, as God, always looks directly to the heart of the matter. This is another point I want to bring up in this, in this prayer for Simon. His prayer for us, and for Peter in this case, is exactly what Peter needed Not what Peter wanted, but exactly what Peter needed at exactly the right time that Peter would be strengthened through this fall that he was going to um, go through. He didn't pray for Peter's release from this trial or this release from the tribulation. He didn't pray that that Peter would be saved from this. What he did and what it's shown to us, you guys, is he's praying Peter through this trial and through this tribulation. The strength comes from faith. I think one of the first eye-opening experiences I had, I didn't get a chance to tell first service this, but um, I was visiting a, a friend of mine that, that I had befriended. He uh, fell, fell from grace, got thrown in prison, I found out after about six years that he was relocated. I had come to Christ before this and that he was relocated in the Madras minimum security prison over there. Had a chance through letters and that kind of stuff to write to him back and forth. Um, got approved by the state to come visit him. And as I sat down with him and he shared his faith that God had brought him into while behind bars, at the same time that I had been brought into a saving faith outside here in the world. I told him, I said, I continually pray for you. And he said, just watch what you pray for. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, listen, God has me here for a purpose. 
He ordained by his sovereignty me to be in this place for this time at this place that I would learn to grow to know him. Don't pray me out of the trial that Christ had approved. Pray me through the trial. That was hard. And I had a chance at that point in time, you guys, to see the absolute strength that God in his sovereignty can build us up through if we allow him to work in our lives through trials and tribulations. You know, the faith that Christ prayed for, we're taught to look unto Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and the end, right? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one who created faith in you as a gift from God. Paul explained this when he explained how he lives by faith. In his confession in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, as he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians chapter 6, in that section of the armor of God, we get a chance to hear the importance of faith. In verse 16, it says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's faith that Peter needed. The trial was going to happen. The overconfidence was going to see him fall. He was going to be tried in the hot fire of the crucible, of the, uh, of the refiner's fire. And it was going to change him. God the Spirit also prays for us. Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 26 and 27, where it says that we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit intercedes and prays for that which is the will of God. So looking at the fourth point, as we went through, indeed, Satan has asked for you, showing God's sovereignty over all, that he may sift you as wheat, showing Jesus' wisdom in allowing us to be refined in the fire. As we look at Jesus' intercessory power, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And then comes a spark of light in this whole set of two verses where he says, and when you have returned to me, and it says in the original King James, and when thou art converted, and I want to explain that a little bit. Those translations we have in the New King James is when you have returned to me. We have in the Old King James translation, and when thou art converted. In the original Greek text, in a word-by-word -word translation, it says, and you when having turned. And that kind of sparked my interest, you guys, as, as trying to be a scholar of Scripture and trying to look up, what does this mean? What does the word converted and returned or turned, what does it mean? What does it mean to us? What did it mean to Peter? And as I looked it up, the Greek word translated returned or converted or turned 
I'm going to mispronounce this probably, is epistrepho, like E-P-I-S-T-R-E-P-H-O. don't know how to pronounce that exactly right, but you guys know what I mean. Um, it means to turn towards, to turn around, to bring back, or to convert. Now that exact same Greek word, let me kind of put it into context for you guys in, in other usages. If you look in Luke chapter 1, that same word is used uh, by the angel who was speaking to Zacharias concerning his son, John the Baptist. In verse 16, it says, And he will turn, epistrepho, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. If you guys go to James chapter 5, the last two verses of that epistle, it says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, same word, epistrepho, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Same word, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way. In Acts chapter 28, as Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verse 27 of Acts 28, he says, For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their eyes are hard of hearing, and their, eyes, their ears sorry, are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, epistrepho, so that I should heal them. I go through all this academic gymnastics, you guys, to point one thing out. And that is, what Christ is saying here is that there's hope. He hasn't just allowed this sifting as wheat, this crucible in the refiner's fire, to be without an end, to be without light at the end of the tunnel. There's an end in this trial, in this tribulation. Jesus gives great encouragement to Peter as he promises that there will be a turning point in this trial. There will be a time when he will turn around and work his way out of that. Christ will lead him out of that. Again, there'll be light at the end of the tunnel. There'll be an ultimate victory in the midst of this trial. So when we're allowed to go through a trial, let's understand that it's for a purpose. Let's understand that it's for good. Let's understand that God um, allowed it. That Jesus in his wisdom has allowed this to happen, that we would grow through it. And that there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's going to be a turning point. When he turns, when Peter turns, he's going to fall back into the loving embrace of his Lord. We saw, we, or we'll take a look at maybe for a quick second, after Peter had denied his Lord three times. In chapter 22, verse 60, as Peter denied him the last time, he said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter was broke. Peter was broke, but there would be a turning point. And he would hear the whispering in his ears of Christ saying, like he did at the end of chapter 11 of Matthew, where he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Peter will come to know that. There's so many scriptures, you guys, that give us that hope of Christ being with us, walking with us side by side through our lives on this earth. In Psalm 16, verse 8, and I've just picked up a few of my favorites. Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He promises in John chapter 6 that he won't let us fall out of that righteous right hand. He says in verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. In verse 39, he says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. John chapter 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, a lot of you guys know this verse, but again, it gives us hope. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Peter's own prayer of God's great hope in his epistle towards the end of his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. Peter, who we're talking about here, says this, after his conversion, after the giving and filling of the Holy Spirit of God, after he made it through the trials and temptations to be refined for a greater uh, place of use within the kingdom of God. And Peter says this, he says, but may the God of all grace who called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is our great hope. 
Jesus is our high calling. Let's look at the very end of this. It says, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And it says the same thing in the original King James. It says, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Jesus encourages Peter, you guys, at the end of this view that we get a chance to look behind the scenes and see what goes on in the spiritual realm of warfare. And he says, listen, after this is all done, after the work that you've went through is, has done its work and you are strengthened, Peter has a commanded responsibility to strengthen his brethren. All that Peter will gain, you guys, through this trial, his supernatural faith, his boldness that knows no limits, his compassion for others going through trials, a brand new understanding and enlightenment of the unfathomable grace of God poured out on an unworthy man. All that that he had an opportunity to learn through this trial. Christ is saying, listen, you don't hold that in a private closet. You don't keep it to yourself as a personal gift. You share with your brothers and sisters in the body. And here's why. When we think in our own selfishness and our own kingdom that we're the only ones that have gone through this, whatever it may be, whatever trial and tribulation we saw, when we think we're the very only ones that went through it and Satan likes to play with us in that game, there are always somebody else who has just coming out of it that needs love and compassion. There's always somebody who's getting ready to go through it and you've just finished going through it. Encourage and lift up. Strengthen thy brethren. In the Gospel of John, he reiterates this to Peter as he goes through the restoration of the relationship between Peter and his Lord. And he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. There's work that has to be done. We are on this earth for a purpose. In this course of events, we're here to strengthen our brethren. If Christ so loved us, you guys, as to give himself unconditionally for us, shouldn't we also love our brethren enough to strengthen them when they need that loving shoulder to lean upon? We're called... In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. <clears throat> Let us walk worthy of that. In 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Galatians chapter 6, 
give us more of an insight. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. As the Lord carries us down that path to spiritual maturity, conforming us into his own image, let's continually pray that Jesus would abide in us by his glory, bearing forth the fruit of his presence to each other and to a dark and dying, unbelieving world out there. This is our high calling. What does it look like to have Christ in you, the hope of glory? In chapter 25, in that parable of the sheeps and goats that Christ is speaking, it says, beginning in verse 34, it says, The king will say to those on his right hand, being the sheep, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we do all these things, right? In verse 40, it says, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. As the worship team comes forward and we we start closing, let's look at these powerful observations from these two verses. Number one, Jesus is sovereign. Number two, Jesus is wisdom. Number three, Jesus is the intercessor. Number four, Jesus is our hope. He's the light at the end of the tunnel. Number five, Jesus is our high calling. Charles Spurgeon had some really neat quotes. And some of you guys that are going through the School of Ministry probably recognize this book. I'm kind of stealing it for a couple of quotes out of here. Um, that really are apropos to what we're discussing. Charles Spurgeon is quoted, he says, most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction. Otherwise, we shall not truly receive them. No man is competent to judge in matters of the kingdom until first he has been tried. Since there are many things to be learned in the depths which we can never know in the heights, We discover many secrets in the caverns of the ocean, which, though we had soared to heaven, we never could have known. We shall best meet the wants of God's people as a preacher who has had those wants himself. He shall best comfort God's Israel, who has needed comfort. And he shall best preach salvation, who has felt his own need of it. The developing power of tribulation is very great. Faith, patience, resignation, endurance, and steadfastness are by far the best seen when put to the test by adversity, pain, and temptation. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles, but more the spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. 
God comes into our heart, he finds it full. He begins to break our comforts and to make it empty. Then there is more room for grace. The humbler a man lies, the more comfort he will always have. The more our troubles humble us, the more fit we are to receive comfort. And God always gives us comfort when we are most fit for it. If we have any power to console the weary, it is the result of our remembrance of what we once suffered. For here lies our power to sympathize. Sympathize. You guys, we're going to be celebrating communion this morning. And as the ushers come forward to pass out the elements, we invite everyone as in the parable of the wedding feast to participate with us in the remembrance of Christ's work on the cross. In the remembrance that Christ paid the price demanded of us of which we could not pay. And he paid that price in our stead. Let us remember his great exchange that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in him. We only ask one thing. Lay down your garments of self-righteousness. Lay down your garments of self-sufficiencies. Humbly leave them aside and accept the free gift of the white robes of Christ's righteousness washed in the blood of Christ from the cross. Accept that free gift. The free gift is available to all who would believe. Revelations chapter 22 verse 17 says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So as the elements are passed out during this last song, take and partake of the elements at your own convenience, at your own timing. And remember that we do this in remembrance of Christ's death till he comes. You've been listening to the teaching ministry at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.